Frederick Douglass is a giant of American history. His name sits on the pantheon of Black History Month figures. Douglass was born a slave in Maryland around 1818. He was born to a white slave-holding father and a black mother who was a slave. Managed to escape slavery and he became a fugitive free person. Then he went on to become one of America's most powerful voices against human degradation and bondage. He's arguably the most influential human rights advocate of the 19th century. But while he's noted as a champion of human emancipation and equality, there's a side of him that is not often remembered and not often celebrated. Douglas was also guided by a radical and challenging Christian faith. Douglas, like many enslaved American children, was separated from his mother at birth. He lived with his maternal grandmother until the age of eight, and then he became a slave servant in the home of a white man named Hugh Auld in Baltimore, Maryland. In defiance of the laws that made it a crime to teach slaves how to read, Mrs. Auld taught Douglas the alphabet. This unlocked a gateway to learning that Douglas followed his entire life. Over time, he secretly continued to teach himself to read and write, all the while strengthening his reserve to escape from slavery. He defied the law, not only learning to read and write himself, he also taught other enslaved people to read as well. In the early 1830s, Douglas was shipped to the plantation of Hugh Auld's brother, a man named Thomas Auld. Thomas Auld viewed Douglas as too headstrong, too uppity. So he loaned Douglas to a man named Edward Covey. And Covey was a sadistic slave master with a reputation for cruelty. Auld sent him to Covey to try to break Douglas. Covey unmercifully abused the teenage Douglas until one day, Douglas fought back, beat Covey up. And that ended the abuse. Covey never told anybody about this, but he did not lay a hand on Douglas again. September 1838, Douglas disguised himself as a sailor. With borrowed free papers, he boarded a train to Havre de Grasse, Maryland. He continued to New York and ultimately landed in New Bedford, Massachusetts and settled there as a free man. There he married Anna Murray. She was a free woman of color who we had met in Baltimore. The couple had five children. And Frederick and Anna made a commitment to eradicate the evil of human slavery. Douglas began speaking at anti-slavery gatherings. And at one such meeting in 1841, he met William Lloyd Garrison. Garrison was one of the leading white men calling at that time for the abolition of slavery. The two men became friends, and with 
garrison support, Douglas became one of the most sought-after speakers on the abolitionist circuit. He became known for both his searing testimony and his powerful oratory. In time, Douglas lent his voice to the then-emerging women's rights movement as well. He once wrote, I would unite with anybody to do right and with nobody to do wrong. In 1845, Douglas published the first of three autobiographies. The first was entitled, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. The book became internationally famous, but it bewildered many critics who argued that such fluid writing and penetrating thought could not possibly be the product of a black person's mind. The acclaim from the book made Douglas fearful, fearful that Hewald, his former slave master, might try to reclaim his former slave. So Douglas moved to England. He stayed there for two years until a group of supportive abolitionists negotiated payment for his freedom. Back in America, Douglas found he had to navigate. Navigate through the turmoil of the decade of the 1850s. He had to be careful to steer a course between extremists like John Brown who believed the only way to abolish slavery was by armed insurrection on the one hand, and old friends like Garrison on the other. Douglas then published his own newspaper, and he entitled it The North Star. That paper incorporated Douglas's anti-slavery and pro-women's rights philosophy. Its motto was this, writers of no sex, Truth is of no color. God is the father of all, and we are all brethren. As the Civil War began, Douglas used his fame and his influence to petition the Lincoln administration for emancipation. He wrote to Lincoln that the thing worse than rebellion is the thing that causes rebellion. He also demanded of Lincoln that the Union allow black men to enlist as soldiers in the war effort. Following the war, there was great hope, great hope especially among the newly freed black people by the passage of the 13th Amendment to the American Constitution. That amendment finally abolished human slavery. But Douglas saw this as only a beginning. He became a strong voice advocating for the passage of additional legislation to ensure absolute equality for black people. But by the end of the decade of the 1860s, Douglas saw his advocacy being overwhelmed by the efforts to suspend Reconstruction, efforts to return black people to a state of quasi-slavery. But Douglas continued to fight for justice, continued to fight for freedom, continued to fight for equality right up until his death in 1895. And that 
1895, when he died, was one year before the notorious U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Plessy versus Ferguson. That ruling upheld racial segregation under a doctrine called separate but equal. And it remained the law of the American land until 1954. I believe we could sum up Douglass's accomplishments this way. Thousands of speeches on freedom, three published autobiographies, founding and editing newspapers, participating in leading the first great women's rights convention in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848, personally lobbying President Lincoln for emancipation, being a champion of the cause of African-American civil and political equality after the Civil War, helping to lead the fight against the oppressive system of racial segregation, disenfranchisement, and racial violence. And also, he led the fight against other elements of Jim Crow. And all of this was derived from a prophetic Christian faith. Surprisingly, the underpinning of his faith was his childhood suffering as a slave. Before his escape at the age of 20, Douglas witnessed and he endured great cruelty at the hands of Christian white masters. He saw firsthand brutal whippings, cold-blooded murder, and the daily trials of physical and psychological abuse. He actually watched a slave master beat his aunt, a 15-year-old girl of striking beauty, beat her nearly to death. But he heard a devout white Christian woman named Sophia Auld read to him from the book of Job. Douglas decided he had to know more about this man, Job. He had to know how Job could say, despite his suffering, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He then came under the influence of a man named Charles Lawson. Lawson was a semi-literate black laborer. The two spent endless hours together, Douglas wrote, singing, praying, and glorifying the Lord. Lawson gave Douglas two priceless gifts. One was faith. And another was a deep thirst for biblical knowledge. Douglas also wrote that Lawson told Douglas that God had great work for him to do. Then as a young man, Douglas studied Christianity under the influence of free black men from the African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME. And under them, he learned that there was more to the call of Christ than the pro-slavery artificial gospel that he had heard from the white slave masters. Confident in the assurance of his own salvation, Douglas converted to Christianity and decided at that point to cast all his cares upon God, writing that he found faith in Christ as what he said was Redeemer, Friend, and my Savior. He became a lay leader and a Sunday school superintendent. And he began developing his speaking vocation by being licensed to preach and delivering dozens of sermons, sermons trying to convince white Americans 
that the anti-slavery cause was a great moral necessity. At the foundation of Douglass' faith rested certain assurances that slaveholders perverted Christianity in their religious justifications of that oppression, that God suffers with the oppressed and will not tolerate injustice forever, and that Christ, in bidding all to come and die, offers a new way to live, a way radically different from what he saw as the world's consuming hatred and violence. To that end, Douglas kept repeating in his sermons a sobering refrain. His refrain was this, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. You see, for Douglas, the problem was not Jesus. The problem was not Christianity. To Douglas, the problem was the hypocrisy of Christians. He condemned the, quote, corrupt, slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity that was everywhere present in America, unquote. And he noted that the cruelest slaveholders were often the most regular churchgoers. He wrote that, quote, the men who wield the blood-clotted cowskins during the week fill the pews on Sunday and claim to be followers of the meek and lowly Jesus. The slave auctioneer's bell and the church gong bell chime with each other and the cries of the heartbroken slaves are drowned in the religious chants of the so-called pious, unquote. But despite these lamentations, despite his constant frustrations, Douglas's faith remained strong. He rejoiced in the continued possibility of redemption. He embraced a way of seeing the world on what he wrote was, quote, a foundation in the Bible itself that God has made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, unquote. Douglas's America is not the America of today. A broad sea of historical change separates us. Much of it unimaginable when Douglas died. Yet, yet we are still heirs of the history that Douglas faced with resolute courage. The malignant prejudice of racism, ultranationalism, and sexism lives on as a mockery of our common creator. Luzon is a mockery of the likeness of the God that we share. I believe if Douglas was alive today, he just might make the same observations that he made in the 19th century when he continually preached that the Christianity in America does not line up with the Christianity of Christ. I believe he would have applied that observation when in the last couple of years, We've seen support for immigration bans on several majority Muslim nations. When we hear of potential executive orders that keep getting floated around that may allow religious people to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, 
Douglas most certainly would have applied that observation. He would have applied it when following violent and murderous demonstrations by white supremacists and Nazis in Charlottesville, Virginia, a national political leader, without broad condemnation, equated those hate groups with those who demonstrated an opposition of that hatred. Douglas would have applied that 19th century observation when watching us engage in ridiculous discussions over whether to build walls on our southern border to keep suffering brown people out rather than finding ways to build bridges of Christian love and welcoming. I believe he would have applied that 19th century observation when, again without broad condemnation, the nation's political leader wonders aloud to the press in the White House, no less, why we can instead find white immigrants to welcome from nations like Norway. Believe he would have applied that 19th century condemnation when, without broad condemnation from the public, including you and me, we allow the official separation of children from their parents when suffering brown families from Latin America come to our borders seeking asylum. When we seem to be comfortable deciding that certain groups of people are not entitled to the same understanding, not entitled to the same welcoming that we and our ancestors have had. We seem to set ourselves up as judges of who is allowed to live, prosper, and be free in the same way that we live, proper, and be free. If he was alive today... Douglas's voice would most certainly be heard. I believe Douglas would repeat to us the same words that he shouted to the country in the 19th century. That he shouted when he said, the warm defender of the sacredness of the family is the same that scatters whole families, separating husband and wives, parents and children, sisters and brothers. Believe he would repeat his refrain that too many Christians profess to love the God they have not seen, but hate their brother whom they have seen. Believe he would again preach his 19th century sermon when he preached this. They love the heathen and refugee on the other side of the globe. They pray for him, pay money to put Bibles in his hand and missionaries to instruct him. While they despise and totally neglect the heathen asylum sisters, seekers, and immigrants at their own doors, unquote. So, my brothers and sisters, let us not make Frederick Douglass a forgotten prophet, one we only pay attention to once in a while during Black History Month. Douglass's faith was bound up in his timeless prophetic voice and bound up in his timeless prophetic actions. And his timeless prophetic voice and his actions were the result of Jesus' will and call for him, and it's Jesus' will and call for both you and for me. I believe we can truly honor the legacy and contributions of Frederick Douglass by following his model 
following his model and letting our prophetic Christian voices be loud. Let our prophetic Christian voices, like his, be both loud and strong. Let them be loud and strong, not only at commemorations like this, but also loud and strong in our communities, loud and strong in our churches, loud and strong in our schools, and most importantly, at the ballot box. Let ours be the strong voices of compassion, today's strong voices of caring, today's strong voices of conscience to the world. And I say thank God for the challenging Christianity of Frederick Douglass. May that challenging Christianity be yours and be mine. May it be ours for as long as we live. Amen.